This is the Hiking Through Life podcast. We've all been gifted a journey called life. Let's see where the journey leads us today. Welcome to the Hiking Through Life podcast. I'm Andy. And I'm Sarah. And on today's journey, we talk with Tom Gable, who is the lead on the Voyager's Wolf Project. We discussed with him what he is doing with the Voyager's Wolf Project. There's a lot of interesting things that they're doing. You can go on their website and see live footage of all kinds of animals. And he goes really in depth with some factual information. I mean, he is just full of wealth and knowledge. And I emphasize that a lot in the episode of him (laughs) because I was just so fascinated by all the things I was learning from him. And we also discuss what it's like to live in a remote area like this. It's at the Voyagers National Park. And that's correct, folks. We have our own national park in Minnesota. Did you know that? I want to give a shout out and thank you to my cousin Heather for connecting us to Tom for this podcast. Heather had an internship at Voyagers National Park a handful of summers ago. And she's the one who so graciously made the connection between us and Tom to do this interview. So thank you, Heather. So sit back and enjoy Sarah's interview with Tom Gable. We are joined tonight by Tom Gable, who is the project lead for the Voyagers Wolf Project at Voyagers National Park. And he is currently living and working at Voyagers National Park. So thank you for being on our podcast tonight, Tom. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me. You guys started this in 20, what was it, 15? Did I read that? Okay. Yeah, so that's when we started doing our really intensive wolf research. And, you know, we had sort of been figuring out how to do our, our research because no one had really successfully studied wolf predation during summertime in a southern boreal ecosystem like Voyagers National Park. And so when we started, it required a lot of sort of figuring it out, trial and error, just seeing if it was even feasible before we put a a whole lot of resources into it. We were able to figure out how to do it in 2015, 2016, and then in 2017. And so then in 2018, we really sort of ramped up our research effort. And um, we really started studying wolf predation, I think, really intensively and, and really completely in 2018. So it was a process to get there. And in 2018 is also when we started doing a lot of our outreach because we knew that we were doing some what we thought was pretty interesting stuff. And we figured that other people would be very interested in learning about it as well. And we thought it was really important to try to communicate what we were doing with the public as a whole because then the public is getting some benefit out of the work we're doing. And our research isn't sort of staying in a little black box. It's actually being shared with a a large audience. And so that's kind of how, or what it led us, I should say, to our social media accounts and and also our research uh, as it is right now. I mean, yeah, you guys have gotten so much awesome media coverage. I was just trying to read all the articles and it's like, wow, where do I even start? (laughs) Yeah, we've been very fortunate in that sense. And and that's sort of what we've been unexpected is, you know, if you had told me uh, a year and a half ago that the project would be featured in, you know, the New York Times or National Geographic or uh, NPR or something, I would have been like, no way. Like, you know, we're just a a small project in uh, a relatively unknown national park. Um, So to see things really take off like that has been really satisfying Um, and I think has been really great for the area because we really believe that Voyagers National Park is an amazing area that has really not gotten the credit, I think, that it's due as a national park. And so we hope that through our research, people will really see the beauty and value of Voyagers National Park as a whole. Yeah, it is one of those parks that's definitely overlooked. It's a park I haven't even been to, and I grew up here all my life. <laughs> you so. know, that's, that's, I've met people when I was doing classes at um, the U of M and the Twin Cities. I met people who lived in Minnesota their whole life that didn't even know where Voyagers National Park was, you know, um, so, you know, which you'd think, you know, could you go to Wyoming and, and someone not know where Yellowstone is? Like, I, I'd be surprised if you could find anyone who didn't know where it is. 
you know, but it's surprising in Minnesota the amount of people I've talked to that, that have never heard of it or at least have no idea that it's even a national park in the state they live in. So, um, so our hope is that through our work, we're able to sort of make people aware of Voyagers and really share how cool it actually is. Wow, that's pretty, I mean, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Just everything you guys have on your website is so informative. And yeah, I don't know where else you would find any of this information that you guys share. Yeah, no, it's been, a, it's been really fun to do that too. I think that's been one of the unexpected components or, or sort of benefits of doing all of the outreach is that it's really exciting to pe- see people excited about the work that we're doing. And I guess we sort of assume people would be excited, but maybe we weren't expecting the level of interest that we've seen. And so to get that, that's really sort of reaffirming. I mean, like, wow, what we are doing is, is pretty cool here. Because when you do this wolf work that we do day in and day out, it sort of loses its novelty as time goes on. It's like anything, like after a while, certain aspects of the job simply become a job. You know, it's just manual labor or or a struggle of some sort that you've got to kind of push through. It's not as exciting as it was when you first started. But to sort of see how people perceive and view our work and how exciting it is to them is sort of invigorating. And it's really kind of like, yeah, what we do is really neat and allows us to sort of step back and really look at what we're doing as a whole and and be really excited about it. Yeah, I really like what you just said though about that because I mean, with your work, yeah, with anyone's work, it's kind of just like getting caught up in the daily grind of things. Like this is just this is just your job. You're just walking out into your field and you go out there for hours. <laughs> yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of honestly it's just a lot of grunt work. Um and a lot of I would say sort of physical struggling and even mental too during our f- field season, we're spending pretty much six to seven days of the week in the field in elements that are really unpleasant most of the times, mainly due to humidity, heat, and bugs. And the bugs are probably the worst of those three in the summertime here. And so you've really got to be kind of um, have a lot of perseverance to keep pushing through our field season, especially when June and July come around, because most days outside really aren't very pleasant. It's not uh, enjoyable. You know, what a lot of people think of the North Woods is being out in the canoe and on glassy waters and, you know, quiet forests. And the forests are sort of quiet, except for the buzz of mosquitoes and flies all around you. And after a while, you just want to be able to be outside without being sort of disturbed by the insects. And that doesn't happen. And so you've got to be, have a lot of sort of fortitude to just push through it and still do the work to a really high, um, level of quality so that the data is good that you're collecting because if it's not good there's really no point of being out there um so there are certainly aspects of the job that do require a lot of just perseverance um plain and simple and so a lot of what people see on say our social media is all the really cool parts of the work and a lot of what they don't see is sort of the less glamorous parts of the work we do which are when it's grimy or it's raining outside and you're drenched and you're soaked and and you're just really not in the mood to go outside and you still have to go out there. And, you know, that's that's working, I suppose. Right. Right. And so when you say you're going out there for like six to seven days, I mean, yeah, I I'm like a big backpacker. And I think like the longest backpacking trip I've done is like five days. And after day five, I'm just like ready to go back in. So for are you guys camping out there this whole time you're doing this research? No. So that's actually a good thing for us is that we are not camping. We are usually doing just day trips where we're going out for the entire day, usually anywhere between eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And then we're coming back to our cabins. Most of our crew lives at park housing on the Southern edge of Voyagers national park. So that is one really nice um, reprieve from the elements is that we know that we're going to be able to come back every night and get a hot shower and sort of get out of the bugs for a little bit. Can we just talk about for a minute, what is it like to be living up there in this super remote area? So living and working around Voyagers National Park is a lot of fun if you like being in wild places, which I do. There are some inconveniences that come with living in a place as remote as Voyagers National Park. You know, you're 40, 45 minutes from a grocery store, um, you know, 
having your mail sent to you is a little bit complicated sometimes, getting packages delivered, things like that. Um, but overall, uh, it's a lot of fun, I think, because living in and around Voyagers National Park allows one to really immerse themselves in the nature that is in the park. And that's really uncommon, I think, these days to be able to live somewhere where you're really surrounded by the natural world. And so you get to appreciate things like the silence of the area. Um, you start to notice things that you don't usually. And then you also realize how loud the rest of the world is when you're living in a city or something like that. So I, I really enjoy living in Voyagers National Park. Like I said, it, <clears throat> it does come with its challenges. Um, and in all things considered, Voyagers, at least where I live at Park Housing, it isn't that remote. I mean, you can drive in there and you get cell phone reception and things like that. But it definitely feels like it's sort of nestled uh, a little ways away from the rest of the world. Yeah, that's nice. That's the feeling that I always get when I go out camping. It's just so peaceful. So to be around that all the time, I can only imagine how great yes. that is. Yes, it's really awesome. So when you say park housing, is that kind of like dormitory settings or what does that look like? So park housing um, is the park has uh, several cabins that they uh, lease out to people. And the cabins are on the south shore of Lake Cabotogama. And it's just north of the little resort community of Ash River. Um, and so uh, there's, I don't know, maybe eight or nine cabins there. And, and usually you split a cabin with someone else who's working at the park. So maybe there's uh, 12 or 15 people that are living at park housing at any given time. And it's really its own little community, which is actually why it's so great to live there is because you're sort of tucked away and isolated, but you're not socially isolated. There's a lot of stuff going on. People are getting together. They're having bonfires, uh, potlucks together and things like this. And so really that that park service community or the people who are working in the park for the summer sort of become your family for five, six, seven months at a time. And that is a really nice part of working in this area as well is having that in the summer. And it's really invigorating because you meet all sorts of people who you would never meet any other way. Um, and you actually make a lot of friends that way too. So yeah, so it's a, it's a great living situation because of that. Yeah, that's really cool. A very tight knit community is what I've, what I'm gathering. Mm -hmm. Super cool. So um, so you live in this cabin, so you have just one roommate? Yep, usually just one roommate. Um, in the past couple of years, usually it's been with someone I know already um, through working at the park um, and working on our wolf project specifically. Um, but the way the Park Service assigns housing, a lot of times you can be put with um, somebody who could be working on something totally different. So someone who might be a um, maintenance worker or work in the aquatic uh ecosystem monitoring program or someone who does vegetation work for the park or, or who knows what. So you never know exactly who you're going to be put with. And that also keeps things interesting as well, because you're interacting with people who are doing a whole bunch of different kinds of jobs. And um, and you learn a lot because you interact and, and see what these people are, are doing and, and where they're trying to get to in their career. Yeah, yeah, that's everyone's on their own kind of different path. But geographically all up in this wilderness area yep. so what is what the cabin itself does it is it fully equipped with a kitchen <clears throat> and running water yes yeah, so the cabins have running water electricity internet um so you kind of get the best of both worlds you get this sort of rustic older cabin um but then you also get all the conveniences I would think of, or I'd say of modern society with uh, internet and cell phone service and um, running water and things like that. You know, we have, a, there's a common room at park housing where there's washing machines and dryers and there's another kitchen and a TV and couches for people to hang out. And then in the cabins, they're fully furnished. Um, they have some cookware that can be uh, good or bad, depending on which cabin you get in. <laughs> Um, the park is slowly redoing uh, cabins because the cabins, I believe, were built in the 70s, 60s or 70s. And so they're a little outdated. I think that's charming, but the park is trying to redo them so they look a little bit uh, more recent and more modern, I suppose. And those look nice, too. Um, <clears throat> so it's really a, a nice living situation in that regard. It's not really rustic, other than the fact that you're living really sort of in the woods or in the, the national park. But otherwise, you have all the the things that you would get otherwise and, and usually the cabins are two bedroom cabins so each person has their own bedroom oh okay that's that's nice mm -hmm. so how often do you think you go run to town to grab groceries 
I would say that I probably get groceries and run to town maybe once every week and a half to two weeks. You really try to limit how often you go into town or need to go into town because it's just so far away. And, and a lot of times we're working such weird schedules that we don't have planned days off. And so if you're going to go into town, you usually have to go in after work and no one likes to come home at 5.30 or 6 and eat dinner and have to drive 45 minutes up to town to get groceries. Um, <clears throat> you know, if we get a rainy day or something like that, we'll try to take advantage of that. But I'd say, yeah, once every week and a half to two weeks. And I should note, there are some like um, gas stations and convenience stores that are closer to park housing, but you're going to pay a lot more to get supplies there. And usually their selections, you know, pretty basic. They've got, you know, milk and eggs and stuff like that, but not a lot of produce and, and other stuff like that. So you really have to go to, to town to get that kind of food. Yeah, yeah. You really have to plan ahead for that kind of stuff. And Yes, you, you make a list <laughs> and you make sure that, that you have that list because you don't want to get up there and get your groceries and then realize when you get back, like, oh, I forgot salt or something that you really need. And you're just like, oh, no. Um, so it's it's important to make sure you, you know what you need. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we live like five minutes from a Costco, so I just have all these conveniences. So <laughs> sure. <laughs> and then um, living in the wilderness, have you learned to forage at all? So I have definitely learned, I suppose, I mean, to forage to an extent, like I'm familiar with a lot of the common mushrooms that you can eat and that you can collect. And that's really fun because Northern Minnesota gets a lot of mushrooms in July and August. And, and if you know what you're looking for, you can get some really tasty food that way. Um, certainly going after blueberries and raspberries and things like that. Um, chaga, you know, if you want to make tea, I wouldn't say I, this, I wouldn't say a whole lot of my actual diet comes from these uh, sources, but they're nice sort of seasonal things to spruce things up. One thing we really enjoy doing is in the springtime is actually collecting, and myself and other people on the, the Wolf Project is actually collecting um, spruce uh, tips and balsam fir tips. And you can actually soak those in um, simple syrup, and it makes this really like nice piney um, simple syrup flavor that you can then use for like mixed drinks and things like that. So we enjoy doing stuff like that. And um, just fun little projects that we can, uh, yeah, do and, and stuff we can collect when we're out in the field, um, doing our other work. Huh. Neat. Neat. Yeah. I think I've, um, tried like a spruce tips in a tea before now that you oh, mentioned sure. that. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's kind of like lemony. Um, yeah. Yeah. A unique flavor. It's some people like it and some people don't like it. Yeah. I remember really liking it. So, um, is there anything else that people might find interesting about housing at Voyagers National Park? What's really enjoyable about living there, we come into park service housing in the springtime when it opens up because um, it's not winterized housing. Um, and then our crew is staying there until late fall. And you really get to watch the progression of the seasons there and on the lake as well. You get to see, you know, we show up in the lakes frozen and then it thaws and then we're there until basically the lake's freezing up again. And so it's really neat to be able to watch sort of the progression of the seasons as you live in park housing and to see that change occur. Um, and I think that's, again, something I think we all sort of notice that um, in everyone in sort of your daily lives, everyone knows like, oh, it's spring and now it's summer and now it's fall. But to be able to really observe it in a really detailed way is really fascinating and to be able to watch it out your, your window as you watch the lake and you see the skim ice forming in the fall or something like that. That's, that's really cool. Yeah, that's got to be a really magical experience and probably teaches you to really, really slow down in life. <laughs> yeah, it does. And it does. And I think, like I said, the thing I like the most about that, the park housing is really the silence. Um, in 2017, I went from living in park housing during the summer um, to going to the Twin Cities where I started my PhD in the fall. And it was such an abrupt change going from the park where it was completely silent all the time to going to the Twin Cities where it's just noise constantly. And you really start to notice how loud and noisy um, our cities and things are when you go from one extreme to the other. And, um, and it really even gave me more of an appreciation for living up in and around the park um, because I was just like, wow, that's that's so uncommon for most people to really experience quiet like that. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really, really cool and really, really special what you're doing. 
Um, so if it's only if it's if it's they're not winterized. So where where are you living currently? So I live up um, in International Falls during the winter time because that's really the only place I've been able to find housing during the winter months. Um, and so I live in International Falls for about five to six months during the you know late fall into early spring, and then I head down to Ash River. Uh, which is 45 minutes away and live in park housing for the summertime. It'd be great if I could live in park service housing um, year round, but the cabins just aren't set up for that. But even with that, simply the sort of continual drain of going out day in and day out for seven months of the year is a lot um, physically and mentally. And that is hard. Um, Part of the problem there is that we're following predators that never stop moving and cover really large areas. And so to study them and study their predation behavior, we have to go everywhere that the wolves that we're following go and the wolves never stop moving. And because they don't stop moving, we can't really stop moving because then we get so far behind on our work that we can't ever catch up because the wolves just keep traveling. So that's one of the reasons, or actually the primary reason why our schedule is so busy during the summer is because we're trying to follow these wolves as best as we can. And that just requires a lot of work. And yeah, when you're following these wolves, have you guys ever actually come in to encounter with them other than when you're like, and I know you've had to GPS track them. So how does that work? Sure. So usually what we do is we down, or I should say, what I do is I download a week's worth of GPS locations from, a, say, a collared wolf in the uh, Moonshadow Pack, for example. So I'll download a whole week's worth of locations. I'll run those locations through a computer program. And what that computer program does is it isolates everywhere that that GPS collared wolf has remained relatively stationary for more than 20 minutes. And The general idea here is that anywhere a wolf remains stationary for more than 20 minutes could be a spot that it made a kill. And so we need to go in on foot and search that area looking for evidence of a predation event. So I put all the locations through the computer program. That computer program sends us all of the areas that the wolf remains stationary. I then figure out where to get our crew at so that our crew can search all these different spots that the wolf has been. And then we all go out into the field and go search those areas. At that time, the wolf has left all of the areas it had been hanging out. So we're not going into areas where the wolf currently is at. Um, They're all areas where the wolf has been. Now, sometimes just by chance when we're walking through the woods, we might actually see a wolf or encounter one by chance. But usually it has nothing to do with the locations that we're visiting. Usually it's just because we're walking through the woods and we happen to get lucky. Um, But most of the times we never actually have encounters with wolves or actually see them. You know, generally speaking, once we put a GPS collar on a wolf, we probably will never see that animal again in person, ever maybe. Um, You know, maybe we'll get it on a remote camera or something like that, but usually we don't see these animals again once we put that collar on. Okay, so yeah, it sounds like you don't see them. So how does that go when you do want to put a GPS collar on them? Because I read on your website you guys only have six GPS GPS systems on these wolves is, or on six of the wolves. Is that still correct? So that was correct. Um, in 2018, we had six wolves that we were following really intensively with these GPS collars on. Last year, we were able to get, I believe, about 13 collars on wolves, and we followed those wolves around. And, and many of those wolves are still wearing those collars. And so the way that we get our GPS collars on wolves is we use padded foothold traps. So these are the kinds of traps you would think um, that maybe trappers would use when they're trying to catch um, animals uh, for fur, except these traps have been modified so that they can catch animals, but then they can catch them unharmed so we can then release the animal with a collar on and follow its whereabouts. So it's really important that the trap doesn't harm the animal in any serious way, because if it does, then it's really not going to give us a lot of great information when we're following it if, it, if it's harmed. So the traps have rubber padded jaws so that it doesn't cause any um, cuts or anything like that when it catches the wolf's uh, foot. Now, certainly capturing any wild animal, regardless of whether or not it's with a foothold trap or a box trap or or from an airplane or something like that, those are going to be very stressful uh, for the animal. And so we try to make sure that 
we do everything we can to make the capture experience um, as quick as possible so that we minimize stress and so that the animal can, can get back to doing what it does and we can start understanding what it's doing. So most of our, or the number of collars, I should say, that we get out on wolves in a given year is really sort of a, a function of how good we are at actually catching wolves. And wolves are really difficult to catch because they're very smart and they cover a huge area. So some years we'll have a lot of success and, and we'll catch a lot of wolves and get a lot of GPS collars out. And then other years, uh, we just don't have that kind of luck and, and it doesn't go so well. And that's just kind of the way wildlife research goes. Things never go quite how you would uh, have planned or expected. And in some ways that's really frustrating. And in other ways, that's really the fun part about it because it's so dynamic and, and there's so many things that you just, that happen that you never would have anticipated. Yeah, yeah. So, but when they, when they do get caught into the traps, I'm guessing you guys have to sedate them or some kind of thing so you can get close to them. Yes. So the traps have, um, hold the wolf there. And then we come in and we actually have a pole that has a, a syringe on the end with sedatives in it. So we then just uh, give the wolf a little shot of the drugs in its butt. And then the wolf goes to sleep and we take it out of the trap. We do a full workup, we put the collar on, we take a lot of measurements, we collect biological samples, try to get as much information as we possibly can while we're there. And then within about 40 to 45 minutes, the wolf is starting to wake up and we let it go. And probably it takes a little while for that wolf to kind of wake up because it's probably kind of hungover, kind of like anyone who's been in surgery or something like that. When you get are given sedatives, you're not thinking straight right afterwards. Um, so it takes them a little while to kind of get with it. Um, but within about a day or so, they're back to running around with their pack and, and really hunting and killing prey, which is, again, of course, what we want. And so this is usually just with one wolf at a time, correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. And you've never, like, been in a situation where, like, the rest of the pack is kind of watching over you guys do this? No, no. So wolves are very relatively, uh, I'd say, timid creatures. You know, there's a lot of sort of stories about the way wolves uh, react towards people and, and sort of these stories of wolves being really aggressive towards people. But we have yet to see this ever. Um, we've never had uh, wolves waiting near another pack member at traps. Um, we do go into dens in the springtime so that we can count the number of pups that packs have had. And sometimes when the pups are old enough, we'll tag the pups so that we can uh, monitor them as they get older. And when we go to dens even, where the, the female's there and sometimes the, the breeding male is there, um, they usually run away from the den and they might be in the general vicinity, but they're in no way aggressive toward us. Um, so as far as large carnivores go, I think wolves are actually pretty wimpy um, compared to say uh, a grizzly bear or uh, even a black bear. You know, if you tried to go touch their cubs while they were there, it would be a bad idea. Um, you know, whereas with, with wolves, that's not their prerogative. They're not going to be coming at you. Um, so we feel very safe when we're doing our field work um, because we don't feel like wolves are any threat to us whatsoever. Okay. Which is, yeah, I think that is a really big misconception about wolves because I just think it's like that stereotype out there that a pack of wolves is going to come attack a human. Sure. And there's a lot of stories and a lot of them, I think, are, are tall tales or uh, people who might observe something and their sort of interpretation of the event sort of becomes, uh, makes it more than it really was. Um, but again, we have a crew of seven to eight people out um, six, seven days a week all the time in, in wolf range. And we're going to the areas that wolves are spending time um, consistently, and we've had no issues. And so, um, you know, if anyone was going to get attacked by wolves, it should be us and, and our crew. And, you know, we just have never had anything even remotely close to an aggressive encounter with a wolf. Okay. And you guys are usually in like a large crew when you go out and do this work? No. So actually, we're usually uh, out by ourselves. So almost everyone on our crew does work individually. Um, if we worked in pairs, we would never be able to cover the ground needed uh, to actually get to all the areas that the wolves have remained stationary where they might have made kills. So we actually all split up and go out by ourselves every day, which is, which I think is actually a lot of fun. It's kind of nice to sort of be, have sort of complete freedom out in the woods. You're just walking around all day. Um, 
but it is nice sometimes also to have a partner in the woods. But um, to make our research possible, we just have to do our work independently. Okay. And you said this is a group of six to eight people. So how how was it decided as to who was going to be on this team for the Voyager Wolf Project? So um, what we generally do is we have a couple people who work um, full time on the project. So um, I lead the project and then Austin Homkiss, um, who will be um, who's worked on the project since 2015, um, he helps with a lot of the field work, and, and he and I are really the only two that are working pretty much year-round on the Voyager's Wolf Project. Um, we have other collaborators that we work with. Um, Steve Wendels is the wildlife biologist at Voyager's National Park, and he really helped get the wolf research program at Voyager's sort of off the ground. And so he's uh, a part of our, our crew, or at least our um, project team. And then Dr. Joseph Bump, who's a professor at the University of Minnesota, and he is my Ph.D. advisor, um, he's also a large part of the project as well, helping handle a lot of the administrative tasks at the university and helping the project run really smoothly. We then get um, the majority of our actual field crew. Um, we get uh, seasonal technicians to come in every year. So uh, we usually have five to six seasonal technicians that we hire um, from April until October to come in and help us with that work. Um, so they'll be there for the duration of the field season. And then once October hits, which is the end of our field season, um, they'll go home and they'll leave. Um, and then the next year we'll try to get a, a whole new set of people in to help with the project. Sometimes we have returning people come join, which is always wonderful. Um, but otherwise we'll get new people in who want to get experience, see what it's like to work on a project like this. And that's also a really fun part of the project is having so many different people come through and being able to, to teach people and show people sort of the grandeur of Voyager's National Park. Yeah, I mean, Voyager, we haven't even ever been there and we are we are from Minnesota. I mean, we need to get ourselves up there after listening to everything you have to say to us. <laughs> Yeah, it's really cool. The um, the Cabotogama Peninsula, which is in the interior of the park, is by far, I think, one of the most underrated sort of national treasures in the lower 48 states. That that peninsula is astounding um, in its sort of um, sort of beauty and also its wilderness characteristics that it has. There's just it feels like total wilderness out there um, and is just awesome. So if you do make it up there, I highly recommend doing the hiking trails on the Cabotogama Peninsula because that place is really awesome. Perfect. I'll make a note of that. So let's talk about how you got involved in this at all. I mean, you have your, your PhD student at the U of M, mm-hmm. um, but what does your background look like before you even got involved in Voyager's Wolf Project? Like what, what did you do growing up to show interest in any of this at all? So I grew up in Midland, Michigan, which is in the middle of the lower peninsula of Michigan, and it's sort of uh, flat farmland in that area. Uh, I was raised in a family that did a lot of outdoor stuff, particularly my dad. He did a lot of hunting and fishing, and, and he took me on all the trips as well. And my grandparents on my dad's side, both of them uh, were avid hunters and fishermen. My grandma and grandpa on my dad's side still hunt and fish every year. Um, on my mom's side of the family, all of her brothers and her dad hunted and fished as well. So I sort of was raised in this family where that was just a large part of, of the family identity was hunting and fishing. And so that put me in contact with wild areas a lot growing up, which was, I think, really uh, formative for me. However, I'd say through high school, I didn't really... Um, ever consider a job uh, in the natural resource field. I didn't even know jobs like that existed. And so I went to college and I was trying to figure out what do I really want to do? And I sort of realized that you could make a career doing wildlife related work. And so I got really interested in that. And I really started pursuing that because I was like, that sounds pretty amazing to be able to spend all your time outside, get paid for it, do something you love. So I, uh, in my senior, or sorry, in my sophomore year of college, I switched to being a biology major. I went to Hope College in Holland, Michigan, which is a small liberal arts college. It didn't have a wildlife program, but it had a biology program, which was uh, good enough for what I needed. And so after my sophomore year, I realized that I really wanted to do something with wolves. I just thought wolves were cool. And at that time, I really didn't have research on my mind. I just wanted to go 
interact with wolves because I thought for some reason that would be really cool. So I found an internship at a captive wolf facility called Wolf Park in Battleground, Indiana. And I went and interned there for the summer. And I was able to sort of accomplish that goal of interacting with wild or with captive wolves. And I was also able to help with sort of the daily operations at that facility. And I really had a wonderful time there. But it was a good experience because I realized that I really didn't want to do captive animal management. That just wasn't my interest. So then the next summer, I was fortunate enough to get an internship in Grand Teton National Park working on a wolf predation project there. So they had uh, GPS collared some wolves in Grand Teton National Park. And my job was to go and, and follow them around and find what they what the wolves are killing and eating. And so I was, it was my first time really going um, to Wyoming and seeing the Tetons and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And I was just sort of uh, enthralled by its beauty and by the work that we were doing. I thought that was just so cool that we were out there studying wolves. Oh, yeah, that's really neat. I mean, Yellowstone, we were there this summer and I, I remember waking up at like 6am to go watch the wolves in this this big valley there. I can't think of the name right now, but a really well-known valley where you're supposed to be able to see wolves if you get up at 6 a.m. And we saw them like eating the carcass and there was all these like grizzlies and black bears. And it was just like all this stuff going on at once. It was really incredible to watch. Oh, it is. I mean, it's astounding. And so when I was out in the Tetons, you know, I saw wolves relatively frequently. And then actually about five minutes from where I lived uh, in park housing, there was actually a, a valley, a little draw that wolves were denning in. And so I went out pretty much every night and I sat on this hill and with the spotting scope, I watched the wolves every night by myself with their pups. And I thought that was just like the coolest thing. Um, it was like a dream come true. And, and I left that summer in the Tetons being like, this is what I want to do. Like, I just know it. Like, I love doing this. And so that really sort of set me on this course to, to really pursue wildlife research um, pretty intensively. So I finished up my senior year of college. And then in the fall, following my senior year of college, I went and actually worked in the Boundary Waters, um, collaring wolves actually in the Boundary Waters as part of the Minnesota Wolf and Deer Project, which has been going on for 50, maybe 60 years now. And I thought that was a really fascinating experience as well. That was my first time I'd ever been to northern Minnesota and really ever in the Northwoods. And so I was out there and I literally lived in the Boundary Waters pretty much all fall. And uh, I picked up some Sigurd Olson books. And so I'd be reading Sigurd Olson in the tent at night. And I just was like, wow, the Northwoods are really cool. And that was and just by yourself where you were up there? I was with one field partner, but it was a pretty isolating experience just because it was just the two of you. And we were staying out in the Boundary Waters for um, 16 day stints um, at a time. So they were really long trips. Um, and we started doing these um, trips in the end of August and we're just going until things started freezing up. And so I remember the, one of the first days on that job, I was about my second or third day in the Boundary Waters and it was 82 degrees and there were some mosquitoes. And I was just like, freeze up seems so far away right now. Like I'm going to be out here for an eternity, it seemed like. And in some ways it was an eternity, um, but it was really also quite amazing to be able to be in the boundary waters and watch summer transition to fall, transition to winter. Um, and I really sort of fell in love with the Northwoods at that time. And so then um, after that position, um, I came and stayed at home with my folks for a winter. And at that time, I actually and that got... was that was back in Michigan, correct? Yes. Yep. So, so I, was Boundary Waters your first ever experience in Minnesota at all? Yeah, I'd never been to Minnesota before. Oh, okay. It was the first time ever. Um, and it was such a cool way to experience Minnesota, too. Um, so then the following uh, spring, after that job, I uh, had applied to a master's um, position uh, where I would be studying beavers in Voyagers National Park. And that master's position was through Northern Michigan University. And I was fortunate enough to get that uh, position. And so that I, so I headed up to Voyagers National Park um, to do my field work. And when I showed up there, Steve Wendells, who's the wildlife biologist there, uh, basically said, you know, I could study anything about beavers that, or anything that I wanted to in Voyagers, but it had to be about beavers in some capacity. 
so I started thinking about, well, you know, what do I really want to study uh, with beavers? And I was like, I don't know. Um, and then I started reading and I realized that that wolves actually consume a lot of beavers. Um, there's a lot of studies in, in various areas where beavers made up a large proportion of the summer diets of wolves. And so I sort of pitched to uh, Steve Wendells and John Brugink, who are my co-masters advisors, sort of said, you know, let's study wolf-beaver interactions. And they thought, that's pretty cool. And so we sort of set out a plan in place to, to start studying wolf-beaver interactions. So in 2015, I went up there for my first official field season um, and started looking at wolf-beaver interactions and wolf ecology as the whole. And that was really sort of the, the start of the really intensive wolf research um, that is now the Voyager's Wolf Project. Um, because in 2015, we started visiting areas that wolves have been spending time. We started looking for kills, started collecting a bunch of scats to try to understand wolf diets. We went into dens trying to count pups. And so that was really the, the sort of genesis of, of all of it in terms of the intensive summer uh, research. Okay. And so you were basically just trying to study how beavers are the main diet of wolves I would say our, our work started as looking at wolf-beaver interactions, but it's really broadened out as time has gone on. Because to really understand uh, wolf-beaver interactions, you have to understand wolf predation on all other species as well. Because wolves and beavers are not sort of interacting in an isolated sense. They're really a part of a larger ecological community. And so in 2015, we sort of realized that, that wow, we need to be gathering a lot of information on on wolf predation on deer and moose and other things as well. And so um, starting in 2015, you know, we, we did a really sort of intensive focus on wolves and beavers. But as time has gone on, it's broadened out. And now we study, we, we consider our project objective to be that we study um, wolf predation during the summer, just generally speaking. Um, beavers are a very important food source for wolves in our area. The extent to which different um, packs prey on beavers, though, is highly variable. So we have some wolf packs where beavers will be the primary summer food source for them, whereas other packs, beavers might be the secondary or tertiary prey source during the summertime. And we're not entirely sure why that is the case. And so that's one of the reasons um, that we're still studying it is we want to understand what's really driving wolf predation on beavers? Is it um, maybe something like the relative availability of beavers in a wolf pack's territory? So if you're a wolf and you live in a ter territory and there's a lot of beavers, maybe you just eat a lot of beavers because there's a lot of them around. Um, but maybe it's not related to that. Maybe it's related to the amount of deer in a wolf's territory. So if you're a, a wolf in a territory and there's not a lot of deer, maybe you start going after beavers because it's the second most abundant food source. Um, but maybe not. So we don't really know. Um, but we're trying to figure that out. And and things change from year to year as well. They change from pack to pack. So there's a lot of variability. Things are always changing. And so to really get uh, a good understanding of how the system works, we have to collect data from multiple packs across multiple years to really try to understand the trends that are occurring in the ecosystem. Okay. And so when you say multiple packs, I know you, like you had that one map that I mentioned previously where you tagged six different wolves from six different packs, but mm -hmm. through, through your guys' research, have you um, been able to find out how many packs there are amongst Voyagers National Park at all? Yeah. So we we have a pretty good idea of the number of packs that use Voyagers National Park, but it's Kind of a tricky question, because if you look at the way Voyagers National Park is sort of set up, it's got sort of this sort of elongated shape. And so it's not a big chunk. of I mean, it's a big chunk of land for sure. But it's with the way it's set up, there's very few areas where wolf packs can exist solely within the boundaries of the park. So to our knowledge, we only have about two packs that remain almost entirely within the park boundaries. However, there's a lot of packs that use the southern boundary of the park, where part of their territories are in the park, and then part of their territories are outside of the park. And so we estimate that about seven to eight wolf packs use at least some part of Voyagers National Park throughout the year. And that's about the best estimate we can get. 
Um, and, and we know to a lot of people that's not a very satisfying answer because a lot of people want to know, well, how many are in the park? Um, but unfortunately, wolves don't really care about that national park border. So they don't establish <laughs> their territories based on where that border is or is not. Um, and so we generally say, you know, seven, eight packs are using uh, some portion of the park and the number of wolves in those packs changes um, from year to year. And so every year we try to go out and get a good estimate of the number of wolves in each pack. And we've been trying to share that information now through our social media uh, pages once we're able to get that information. Yeah, wolves don't care about the national park boundaries, of course Mm-mm. not. <laughs> right. So um, in a pack, yes, you guys don't know the exact number of them, but do you know, like, is it typically like the alpha and then like what does the pack look like so a typical pack in our area is on average about five wolves and typically the structure of a wolf pack in our area is going to be a breeding pair so a breeding female and a breeding male which some people will also refer to as the alpha male and the alpha female and then generally the other wolves in the pack are going to be their offspring that are probably going to be one to two years old And so you might have um, two of the five wolves in a typical pack or the breeding pair, and then the other three are going to be the offspring of that breeding pair. And so that's what a a typical wolf pack looks like. Certainly there's variability, though. We'll get packs that are are bigger than that, maybe seven, eight wolves. And then we'll also get some packs that are smaller, maybe two wolves. Um, And if there's only two wolves in a pack, generally that's just a, a breeding pair that's moving around together. And then the, the little cubs, um, how long do they typically stay with the adults until they go off on their own? So wolf pups generally stay with their, uh, their pack until they're about a year and a half to two and a half years old. So they'll stick around until they're pretty much adult wolves. Um, and then by the time they're a year and a half old, generally uh, wolves will start sort of checking out what's beyond their their territory. So they'll start making these movements where they leave their their territory, go out and spend maybe a day or so outside of their territory, and then they'll come back and they'll hang out in their territory. And the thought is that they're sort of making these sort of scouting trips to try to see, you know, what's beyond their territory if they were to leave. And then eventually um, some of those wolves will leave for good and they'll go out and try to find open territory uh, for themselves and they'll try to find a mate and set up Uh, their own pack somewhere else. And that's really how wolf populations as a whole work. And this is happening all across, you know, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, where you have pups that get to be a year and a half, two and a half years old, they leave their pack, and they go try to find a mate and and set up a territory somewhere. Okay. And it seems like a lot of animals kind of work that way. Like that got me thinking about um, kind of how loon, yeah, I think I went to something about loons at a state park once. And that's kind of how the loons work, too. But I'm sure lots of animals live that way. <laughs> oh, sure. Yep. Uh, same thing with, like, beavers. Beavers have the same sort of familial structure that wolves do, where you have uh, a breeding pair and then their uh, younger offspring that are living with them. And by the time those younger offspring get to be a year and a half, two and a half years old, they're heading out looking for uh, a new place. They want to leave the nest and sort of start their own family. Okay. That'd be scary if that's how humans operated. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. So you guys, um, you do this in the summer. So then why does that kind of work stop in the winter? Well, there's two reasons. The first is we're pretty exhausted by the time the summer's done, where, you know, by the time the end of October rolls around, we've been going pretty much 24-7 since April uh, in field work, and we're just kind of like we just need a break. The other is just the logistical challenges of trying to just do field work year round at that intensity is just not feasible for us right now. And we don't really have the resources available to do it. I think we would love if we could get the money to do a year round study where we're studying the predation behavior of wolves during the summer and then in the winter as well. Um, but it just, we haven't gotten that money yet. And I don't think we're really pressing for it because I don't think we have the energy and ability to do that well as things currently are. The other reason too, is that there are a lot of other aspects to the project uh, and to our work that we need to be doing, such as writing papers, analyzing data, writing reports, getting grants, et cetera. 
And during the shield season, we really don't have any time to do that because we're sort of just all gung ho towards getting field work done. But then in the winter time, when things are a little bit quieter, that's the time where we really try to crank out writing papers, uh, catching up on data, getting prepared for the next season, etc. Um, and so right now, I think we're pretty happy with that setup. I think every scientist is always, you know, trying to think about how they could kind of squeeze more data out of their the work they do. And, and certainly the winter has been something that seems really enticing to us. Uh, but until we sort of got the resources to do it, I think we would we're just going to kind of hold off for now and, and be content with the fact that we've got kind of a, a crazy long field season as it is already. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody needs a little rest and relaxation, especially yes. after, after what you guys do. I mean, your days, like you said, they're like 10 hours long and you're mm-hmm. out there in the rain and all kinds of elements. So yes, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Think you deserve your hibernation. Yeah. <laughs> so do you find yourself um, going outside for fun in the winter then? Yes, absolutely. So it's actually weird once you do the field season or once we kind of finish up our field season, we've been spending so much time in the field walking around, covering, you know, seven, eight, ten miles a day in the woods that, that once November comes and we're done with the field season, you kind of have all this energy. You feel like you need to be doing something. You need to burn that energy somehow. And sitting in an office is quite challenging, actually, because you want to be out. Your body's used to being really active. And so generally, by the time the field season ends, you know, it's it's hunting season, so it's hard to get outside and go hiking. And then um, because you don't want to hike in state land at that time. And then the park, uh, the lakes are freezing. And so a lot of the park is actually inaccessible during November. So it's kind of actually a challenging time to get outside um, until things are frozen up solid. But once things are frozen up solid and the uh, cross-country ski trails have enough snow, um, I'm getting out cross-country skiing generally four or five times a week. Um, once the ice is good enough in the park, we get out in snowmobiles. And, and we do do some winter field work, but it's, it's very limited. Generally, we're just deploying remote cameras and, when possible, trying to um, get counts of wolf tracks that are running down trails because that's one way we can estimate the number of wolves in a pack. Um, and then on some nice days, like on the weekends or something, I'll get on one of our um, sleds and I'll go out and actually just to get some exercise and I'll go to an area where our wolves have been hanging out and, and try to see if there's a kill there. And that's not really for academic pursuits or, or for research purposes. It's more just because I find it interesting and enjoyable. And it's really cool um, to be able to just go see where wolves are hanging out and, and what they're doing. International Falls, which is the town by Voyagers National Park, and then Voyagers National Park as a whole, is a wonderful place to do outdoor things and to spend time in wilderness if you like wilderness. And, and I really love the wilderness aspects of the area. Um, so I try to take advantage of that as much as I can. Yeah. And I know um, Heather, my cousin who got us connected, she she had nothing but amazing things to say about Voyagers National Park as well. Yeah. During the winter time, it's really cool um, because you can go snowshoeing um, on all the beaver ponds and drainages in the area. And during the summertime, those places are, are horrible places to try to walk through because they're wet and swampy and things like that. But in the winter, when it freezes solid, you can just sometimes walk for miles just following these beaver pond chains that go way into the park. And that is really cool. Um, and that's and that's one thing I love doing, because during the wintertime, I am able to go see and access places that I pretty much physically just can't get to during the summertime um, without getting, you know, soaked or something like that. Um, so I, I think the winter is amazing time up in Voyagers. And so you you've been living up there um year round is this since like 2015 have you just been stationary there my schedule is uh convoluted or the way i've had to move around because i've had to go to and from northern michigan university to take classes when i was doing my masters and then up to voyagers and then um then i started a phd at the twin cities and so i had to go down there for a little while to take classes and then move back up here so there's been a lot of back and forth um in the past. Right now, I'm up there permanently, and I envision myself being up there permanently now, um, for or for as long as we have funding to keep the project going. And I'm happy about that. I That's where I want to be. Um, but to complete 
you know, meet academic requirements. I had to do a lot of uh, moving back and forth between the park to do field work and then uh, campuses to do uh, academics and classes and things like that. I've talked to a handful. Of, I guess you're not a naturalist per se, but it seems like anyone in the wilderness outdoor field has just like gone all kinds of directions to get to where they are. <laughs> and you kind of have to. There's a lot of, um, especially in the wildlife field, especially when you're working with uh, really charismatic animals, there's a lot of people who want to do that and are really interested in it. And so it's actually quite competitive um, to get positions um, studying wolves or, or cougars or bears or something like that because everyone wants to do it. And so to be competitive for doing jobs like that, you have to have a lot of previous experience. Um, and so a lot of people in the wildlife and natural resources fields are bouncing all over, um, getting experiences in random sort of places so to sort of boost their resume so that when a job that they're really interested in comes along, they've really got sort of a robust resume and they're a good uh, candidate for it. But yeah, there's a lot of um, a lot of bouncing around. And I don't know very many people in the wildlife field um, that have remained in the wildlife field that haven't had to do this sort of similar thing to myself as bouncing around a lot. And I would actually consider mine, my path, this sounds funny, but uh, relatively straightforward relative to a lot of other people I know. Yeah, I mean, you got to go to the Boundary Waters and now you're in Voyagers, so you're geographically in the same area. <laughs> yes, yes, um, yes, and that's really nice. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things, it's, it's sort of the, um, the cost of, of being in the wildlife profession is sort of knowing like you're really doing it because it's something you're passionate about and you know kind of getting into it that this is what it's going to entail. This is kind of the, the schedule or, or the way things are, and you're going to have to be flexible and willing to move and, and to get that experience. And in the end, I think it's totally worth it. Um, it's not everyone's cup of tea, um, but I think it's been really great and I've had a blast doing it. Um, but it is very confusing to try to explain how I got from, you know, being in Michigan, uh, doing biology at a small liberal arts college to now a to Voyagers National Park sort of leading this wolf project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you listened to any of our previous podcasts, but there was a naturalist named Devin that we interviewed, and he has a podcast called The Wildlife. Okay. And um, yeah, his story is very similar to yours in the sense that he went down to like Texas for something and he's just been all over the place in the field too. But I mean, his, his passion is just like yours. I mean, talks with so much excitement and like you both just have this like wealth of knowledge and just listening to you, I can just hear your enthusiasm for what you do. Yeah, it's great. I mean, and it would be a hard field, you know, um, being in the natural resources, if you weren't passionate about it, it's really not a great field to be in because it's not going to pay very well. And, uh, you know, you are going to be moving around a lot. So it's something I think you sort of have to be innately interested in. And it really is sort of a um, sort of a lifestyle that you live. It's not really a job. It's sort of like part of your identity to some extent. And I think that's really cool. Um, and I really like that part about doing this sort of research. Yeah. And I like that you say it's kind of like your lifestyle, especially when you were talking about how you go out during like in the winter, you go out for fun hikes, yet you still find yourself getting like so excited when you're finding like these wolf tracks and you're just doing all this stuff in your free time as your hobby. So, I mean, do you have a long term goal in this field or is that not really <laughs> uh, like do you just kind of go where the wind takes you or so now that I'll have my uh, PhD in a little bit it'll be easier to sort of get a permanent position somewhere um, you know my long-term goal if things work out as I sort of want them to I would love to continue uh, running the Voyager's Wolf project up here and, and doing that long term is my career it's sort of my dream job really in every in every way um, it allows me to do field work a lot of field work really intensively but it also allows me to explore and and do a lot of the academic side of the research as well such as writing and data analysis and I find those to be really mentally stimulating and, and satisfying as well in a different way 
Um, and so having the ability to do a lot of field work and also do a lot of the academic side of things is really great. So I would love to stay up here. Uh, we just need to get long-term funding to make that happen. And I have no idea what the odds of that actually are, but that's really the dream. If that doesn't work out, I'll probably go look for research biologist positions um, with federal agencies or universities or something like that, because I, it's really my passion is doing research and trying to go out into the natural world, collect data, and then make sense of what that data is and what it tells us about how the natural world works. Well, I mean, yeah, like I've said, I mean, your passion is so true to what you're doing. So, yeah, and I don't even think we touched on this, but is Voyagers National Park um, the national park that has the highest amount of wolves, or is that not true? So Voyagers National Park um, is the only national park in the lower 48 states that never completely lost its wolf population when people were um, trying to remove wolves from various areas. Um, so because it's so thick and swampy and, and hard to access, it probably allowed wolves to, to live there and not get um, killed by people in the area. Um, so that's pretty cool. In terms of the number of wolves in the park, I don't think it's um, I don't think it has the most. I think Yellowstone National Park, just because it's bigger um, by, in terms of landmass, has has more wolves out there. Um, but I'd say Voyager's sort of claim to fame is that, you know, they just never lost their wolf population, which is, is really cool, given the fact that um, pretty much everywhere else in the lower 48 um, had the wolves removed. Uh, they were killed by people um, pretty quickly um, in the 18 and 1900s. So the fact that Voyager's kept theirs is pretty cool. Yeah, that is really cool. And I can just I can just see you being on a commercial for Voyagers National Park to advocate all of this. <laughs> mm, that would be great. You know, would love to do that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, your passion is huge, and I I just love it. It's awesome. Do you have anything else you want to share with us? I don't have I mean a whole lot else other than you know if people want to learn more about the Voyagers Wolf Project, I encourage everyone to. Follow us on our Facebook page or our Instagram account. Check out our website. Um, you know, our hope is really that we can sort of bring people along with our project as, as things occur. And our social media is really the way that we're able to do that. And so we're uh, hopeful that, um, yeah, anyone listening will check us out there and, and uh, learn more about the project. And what is the website? The website is voyagerswolfproject.org. And there's a lot of uh, resources on the website, such as information about the project, uh, neat animations showing wolf uh, GPS location movements, uh, videos that we've gotten from our remote cameras, uh, access to all of our uh, scientific articles that we've written are available there. So there's a lot of resources there uh, about the project. Yeah, actually in that video, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think there was ever a moose that you guys captured in that video. Mm. Yeah, so moose are, are actually relatively rare on the south side of the park and actually south of the park. The majority of the moose in Voyagers National Park are out on the Cabotogama Peninsula. And even there, it's not a high-density moose population, um, but there are moose there, and, and we have seen them when we've been out there. But south of the park uh, and on the southern boundary of the park, it is uh, pretty uncommon for us to, see, to ever see a moose, see tracks of a moose, or even get a moose on camera. So mainly, um, yeah, mainly it's deer and wolves and beavers and raccoons and, and all that other stuff. Oh, okay. Didn't realize that. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been super awesome. Sure, absolutely. Thanks a bunch for having me on. So it's really neat how Tom emphasized that this is more of a lifestyle than a job because when he goes out there in the field, it's not your typical nine to five job. He's out there for a super long period of time and like he said, in all types of conditions and it's something you really have to love. So I really liked hearing his enthusiasm for what he's doing. Listening to Tom helped me understand wolves a little bit more. I know we talked about the misconceptions of wolves and how when they would go out and track these wolves, they would need to sedate some of them. And they said, like, the packs around them wasn't a concern. Like, because a question I asked was, 
do the other wolves like show protection when you're doing work on one of their one of their wolves from their pack and he said no so I mean I just really think that there's a lot of people out there who see wolves as a very evil creature yeah I think the wildlife in general has a bit of a misconception unless you're out there experiencing it yourself and a lot of wildlife they do tend to stay away from humans as much as possible I mean it's just another thing though to keep in mind when you are out recreating in the wilderness is don't do things that would encourage wildlife to approach you like leaving food out practice the leave no trace principles and you should be all right but wolves in general tend to just stay away from humans. I'm excited to go find wolves up at Voyagers now. I mean, it's crazy that it's a place that we've never visited. Yeah, it's definitely on our to-do list for this upcoming summer. Visit Voyagers and hopefully see some of the wildlife that inhabits the park. There are places that you can like see some signs of wolves that aren't up north as far as Voyagers. We were recently... At a state park, and we did see some Actually, Temperance is further than Voyagers. <laughs> is it further? Yeah. No way. It is. Do you have a map to prove your knowledge? No. <laughs> this is kind of mind-blowing to me. I'll show you. So Sarah might have been right about the Voyagers being further away than a couple of the state parks we went to on the, on the North Shore. Yeah, we did do a quick Google research and found out that Temperance River is, in fact, a closer drive than Voyagers National Park. Cut. We're cutting that out. Andy's always right. Anyways, so you were saying we, we found wolf tracks. Yeah, we found wolf tracks. We saw some hair. So we were just checking them out for a little bit at Temperance River. And there was there was a handful of areas where we saw the tracks. Yeah, we wanted to follow the tracks, but we decided it would be better not to. But we think that there was two wolves at Temperance River about, this was three weekends ago, the weekend of January 10th. It's cool that we saw signs of wolves shortly after our interview with Tom. It was fun. And if you do the hiking club trail at Temperance River State Park, hint the password deals with wolves so go back there and you will just maybe see some signs of wolves yourself if you want to check out more of the voyagers wolf project go ahead on over to voyagerswolfproject.org and you can also check out their facebook page voyagers wolf project we'll have links to both of those down in the description of the episode this is hiking through life howling out Thanks for listening. We love sharing these stories with you through the Hiking Through Life podcast, and we're so grateful that you listen to this podcast. If you'd like to support the Hiking Through Life podcast further, we have these amazing new t-shirts and water bottles. The t-shirts come in four colors, and the water bottles are perfect for trails, adventuring, or daily use. Consider checking them out at hikingthroughlife.net slash shop. Use the code podcast and receive 10% off your first order. You've been listening to the Hiking Through Life podcast. Peace, love, and hike through life.